Benifer is back. Brad and Jen are friends again. And Paris Hilton is somehow still making headlines. 20 years later, we're living in the world that the 2000s tabloids created. On this series, I'm going to tell you the story of a decade of American life through the trash we love to consume. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Claire Malone, and this is Just Like Us, the tabloids that changed America. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC Pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. Hello, media consumers. Welcome to Press Box Friday. Brian Curtis of The Ringer here, along with producer Erica Cervantes. We have got a very cool show today. It's devoted to the kind of things we love to read, but that leave us feeling kind of bad inside for having read them. We'll bring on the novelist and musician John Darneal to talk about true crime journalism in just one second. But first, there is a very cool podcast that just started up here at The Ringer. The podcast is called Just Like Us, The Tabloids That Changed America. It is written and reported and generally masterminded by The New Yorker's Claire Malone. Claire got interested in a period of tabloid history that starts in the early 2000s. That's the time of such mega stories as Benefer, Britney Spears, Spencer Pratt, who makes an appearance on the podcast. It's a time when Us Weekly magazine was going up against people for scoops and photos of the stars. Claire says, and this is not totally tongue-in-cheek, that what the tabloids did during this period changed the course of American history. How so? Here's Claire Malone. All right, Claire, I love hearing people talk about reading things at a certain point in their lives. And you say in the podcast that in 2002, you were reading about the Ben Affleck, Jennifer Lopez romance in the tabloids. Are you able to describe what it felt like to read those stories in that moment? I was an impressionistic teenage lifeguard. And, you know, and so I would say in some ways, like all of my tabloid reading, I can see myself sitting at Thornton Park on my, you know, off, off break. And, um, I think I was just, I really, you know, I didn't, I had a teenage brain and I also didn't have the perspective that the internet now provides us of like, this is all kind of fake or there are publicists behind that. Like, I didn't know what a publicist was. And so I think I really had this earnest reading of 
wow, this is like up and down. And I knew it was trashy, obviously, um, but just loved the kind of like, you know, juicy couture sweatpants with like a $1 million pink Harry Winston diamond ring of it all. Like I liked, <laughs> I think I, I think the overall <laughs> impression I had was like, this is, this has nothing to do with my life. And it, isn't it great? Like, isn't this exactly what I, what I want? And I think I still, you know, I think for Amanda Dobbins, my editor on this, and you know, we're about the same age and there's a certain, like, I think magic we were chasing of like, before, before we were spoiled by the internet and spoiled by the cynicism when we just like really enjoyed the fluff of it all, which I kind of wanted to capture, like how glossy tabloid mags like Us Weekly, which was like kind of highbrow, but kind of lowbrow too. Mm -hmm. um, just like really knew how to make some delicious ass candy and like we loved eating <laughs> it. And it just is not, it's not the same anymore. And the, you know, like I scroll the Daily Mail homepage every day, which makes me feel like a little bad, you know, like a little bit dirty. And I just never felt that way with, with my Us Weekly or tabloid reading back in the day. So for people who are sadly too young to have experienced this in its 1.0 form, why was Benefer, the story you start the pod with, such a juicy story for the tabloids back then? It was, so a couple reasons. So it was the beginning of the decade which is one of the reasons why we conveniently, you know, we're telling the story of the 2000s. And it was kind of like the first really big, supersized, crazy um, celebrity couple story. But um, the kind of media story behind it is that um, Bonnie Fuller had come over, Bonnie Fuller, sort of famed um, magazine editor with like, a, she later went on and edited a bunch of the, um, the sort of trashier grocery store tabloids and made a lot of money but but bonnie fuller was seen as this genius who had you know been at glamour magazine and kind of came over to us weekly and turned it in around 2001 i believe and turned us weekly from this kind of cooperative like more like people magazine you know here's a nice you know photo that the publicist we agreed on and this she you know the star looks beautiful in this bonnie fuller turned us weekly into paparazzi shots on the cover reported stories like actual reporting inside like getting the gossip and the dirt on people and um benefer kind of happened at that same time as like bonnie fuller's us weekly people were like this is great you know because who doesn't like gossipy reporting right and so benefer was also so there was, that was sort of the media structure going on and then i think benefer was just you know she's in all these rom-coms their opposites attract. I mean, we kind of talk about the, the race and class of the opposites attract of it all. Like Ben Affleck is prestige white actor. He had just been dating Gwyneth Paltrow. J-Lo had just been dating Puffy, is associated more with hip hop. Um, but people were really into, but she was also in all these rom-coms where what's the premise of rom-coms, right? Opposites attract. And mm -hmm. it kind of felt like that in person. And I think those two things plus the the real rise of and hunger uh, for paparazzi photos kind of egged on by like a bidding war between people magazine and us weekly, which we get into in the series really just all swirled together and made this kind of crazy atmosphere for, for Benefer. So take us back to the journalism nitty gritty of the early two thousands, them getting together and then breaking up. Those are two big stories, but between those, there's all these kinds of mini scoops or scoops with big air quotes around them. 
what kinds of news are they competing for here? I mean, they're competing for things like, um, was Ben at a strip club in Canada and how did JLo feel about it? Or, I mean, you know, what is, JLo also cooperated a lot with tabloids, which we talk about. Like she was very into, she was kind of, she was selling an album. She was promoting all these movies. She was less famous or less prestige than Ben Affleck. And she was kind of cooperating with them. So some of the scoops were like, JLo does an interview to tell you like what she cooks for her man and how she like has a bang and body. Like, like in my living room in the next room, I have all these old, you know, issues of Us Weekly where it's, it's like those little things. So they're not even, it's kind of like the, I mean, it's, it's, if you're a page six reader, it's like page six stuff, right? It's here's, here's a relationship. Here's the ups and downs of the relationship because everyone is talking to fill in the blank reporter and kind of giving you the micro updates every week. And, you know, ladies in New York are reading it while they get a pedicure on Friday or something. And that was, those were kind of the scoops they were going after. Sometimes they were bigger though. I mean, when they, when they eventually, in the lead up to the wedding that never was, there were a lot of actual, like, where are they having it? And, you know, someone told me that there was a, a sort of well-placed girlfriend of a, of a Hollywood po- power player who was just, you know, leaking wedding details to, um, to us weekly. So it, it was kind of like this, you know, frippery stuff, but, um, stuff that really, really moved magazines and, and really moved sales for, for these places. And you say in the pod, this is kind of the end of the old movie star remove where they have a little bit of distance from us. How, how is this different? Cause they had reported on celebrity relationships before, right? Magazines, but how was this, how did this feel different? It was kind of kicking people off their pedestal a little bit. You know, that I think that was sort of the magic of the Bonnie Fuller. And then later Janice Min took over the magazine and, and people would say grew it sort of in her very, um, you know, she later took over as what, editorial director of the Hollywood reporter. So very kind of Columb- like a lot of very smart people, Ivy educated people were running very trashy magazines. But um, I think the magic of these things is that they magic of these magazines is they both gave us the Hollywood glamour of it. But then we're also like, but they're really kind of skeezy too. You know, that would, they were, they were sort mm. of, they were more impish. The tone was more impish. And I think before, and you know, still people magazine or an entertainment weekly took a different tone to, to, to celebrities. It was more, I think more akin to, you know, our, you know, the fanboying or Stan culture, right? Like those magazines were a little more flattering to celebrities. Whereas us really was like kind of trying to have it both ways saying like they're beautiful and glamorous, but also here's their, you know, here's their seedy sides. And obviously that's been, that's been done before in Hollywood media. Like, you know, when I first started doing this, I, um, I ordered and read Hollywood Babylon, which is like the, t- the like the you know the trashiest of the trash, probably <laughs> mostly untrue um, story like stories of like 1920s and 30s and and 40s Hollywood, where just like a lot of really bad stuff happened. And I think this was like the the version, but with fact checkers, you know, like <laughs> there, there <laughs> were some lawyers. There were guardrails on it, but it was definitely like looking to in some ways do a classic thing that journalism does, which is like check people in power or hold people in power to uh, like shine a brighter light on them because, you know, people in Hollywood are selling you something, which I think is a thing we kind of tried to keep coming back to in the podcast. Like that's the tricky thing with the ethics basically of celebrity tabloid journalism is like how you should think about the people behind this 
Us Weekly, which is such a big subject for your pod. And first of all, when I was a kid, I bought the pre-Bonnie Fuller edition. I remember one time at the airport because it had like a nice posed picture of Harrison Ford on the cover. I remember going to my mom go, hey, look, I picked up US Weekly. I mean, it was sort of there, but not there. And she comes in and she say, People is the old, respectable celebrity magazine. You have the supermarket tabloids below it. And then she's just kind of slotting it right in the middle of those two things. Yes, which was genius. I mean, yeah, she wasn't like I remember, you know, my grandmother bought the National Enquirer, which was printed on grubby newsprints, grainy <laughs> yeah. photographs, like really just kind of like you should you should be like a little embarrassed to buy it. And Us Weekly had I mean, the genius of it was kind of like back when newsstands mattered, right? It had great covers. I mean, those cover lines are A, they're glossy. B, they're super catchy. I mean, they just had, you know, I think some of the, a lot of people talk about like the Janice Min cover line where she just had, it was always like, there were a lot of questions, you know, like in the vein of like, you know, either why, maybe I can't remember if this is Bonnie Fuller era or Janice Min era, but like, why aren't they married? And it's like, the three friends girls, right? Like Courtney <laughs> Cox and Jennifer Aniston. I mean, bad stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But like, yeah. but you're just, but you're kind of like, oh, I mean, why aren't they? So, so, so things like that, I think really, it was kind of this alchemy where it was, I mean, highbrow, lowbrow is so overused now, but that's really what it was. I mean, she really kind of did, as you say, slide right in between um, those two genres of celebrity journalism. And Fuller is the one who invents the feature, which gives your podcast its name, Stars Are Just Like Us? Yes, correct. Uh, And what is the genius? What is the spark of genius here? I mean, Stars Are Just Like Us was, uh, it was basically paparazzi photos of celebrities doing banal everyday things, like getting coffee, walking their dog, like dropping something. And it was the, the kind of idea was, and this is, I think, <laughs> dropping the whole- Dropping something. I love that. <laughs> the whole ethos is like, uh, yes, on like the previous pages of this magazine, we have printed pictures of these people in like banging red carpet outfits, but like here they are with their gut hanging out, pumping gas. And like, they are just like us. So it was, she was, they were kind of playing both sides of it. Um, uh-huh. the, you know, the, du- the duality of celebrity to get all American studies on you or something. But like the, the, the idea that like these people are glamazons but also they they are just like you they're human beings and like but but not in a compassionate way in a like let's let's make ourselves feel better by looking at their cellulite kind of way which is a theme of of 2000s media that that is that gets even worse when blogs come around that's what I was going to ask you are we making the stars relatable or are we just bringing them down to our level and and humbling them we're bringing them down to our level i don't think there's anything particularly compassionate about uh 2000s tabloid media either us weekly or Perez Hilton in particular, when he starts his rise. I mean, I think there was really this sense of, um, these people are, uh, card, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of cardboard cutouts, right? They're paper dolls. And like, um, there, I think there's some like, you know, a little, like a little resentment that we all have of like the beautiful people. And they were harnessing that, or, you know, the schadenfreude of like, I, I always joke, you know, with people that like Google any celebrity plus nose job and you'll find before and after Google image results. And that's totally like a thing that I got from probably the mid two thousands celebrity blogs and this kind of idea of like, well, it's beautiful, but it's all fake. 
Um, so I do think it was kind of cutting people down to size, um, which I think we've gotten better about and maybe are, you know, have a more complicated take on how we should view <laughs> celebrities, but it's definitely, I think it's a still ongoing conversation. Yeah, I think we're still working it out in, <laughs> in real time. Now, the early 2000s, this is the end of the golden age of magazines. So what are the spoils that somebody like Bonnie Fuller would enjoy by being editor of Us Weekly? Really big paycheck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't I don't have the sort of reporting on what Bonnie Fuller's Us Weekly paycheck was, but there was reporting that Janice Min was making around one to two million dollars a year which would put her on par with like what Graydon Carter was making at Vanity Fair just like really big money um you know there was there were also a lot of I think it was a real lifestyle I mean these people these were the sort of stereotypical um, I talked to, to Bonnie's assistant and he was like you know she was always she she had she would commute in she had three kids she was a busy lady in addition to like running a magazine, but he was like, it was kind of the stereotype of Bonnie's in the makeup room at 4 PM. Someone's doing her hair and makeup for a red carpet. She's doing that night and she's on the phone or like looking at page proofs. There's just, so there was a lot of, there was a lot of work, but I think a lot of, lots of parties, lots of red carpets, lots of schmoozing. It was kind of a, a a New York that was, um, I guess devil wears Prada esque, right? Like that's, that's probably people's most, uh, the easiest reference point um, for what these, these, you know, women, women editors were kind of living. She's cutting celebrities down to size. And she is also a celebrity who's being photographed on the red carpet. That kind of, she's thing. a media celebrity. Yeah. I think she, she's like a page six. She's like a page six, New York celebrity. Let's put it that mm-hmm. way. <laughs> in early two thousands, just to just mark the moment in media time here. So magazines are still a thing. People are still picking up a print object, which they do much more rarely now. But the celebrity doesn't have Instagram or social media yet. No. So they kind of can't fight back or cast this just, you know, bury us in a torrent of photos of them out shopping and stuff like that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I can't remember what year Us Weekly actually they had a website, but the website was like buyer subscription. You know, they didn't, I don't think they were actively um, using their website for people to read articles until like 2006. And I think, you know, celebrities really had to, you know, kind of play ball with first the magazines and then the blogs. I mean, we talked, you know, I talked to um, a couple bloggers, particularly one who was, let's say, covering Kim Kardashian during her rise in 2007. The blog was like writing a lot of crazy stuff about Kim, maybe some of it true, some of it not. And Kim had to reach out and sort of say like, listen, I'll do a sit down interview with you because I want, I want to present my side of it. I mean, that's unheard of now, right? Because, uh, Instagram rolls around in, I think it in 2010, it's officially invented and then just completely changes the paradigm of celebrity control while obviously print is falling apart. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's 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 not sustainable. There's lots of these, you know, websites popping up. Just everything kind of changes, and celebrities have more room to put their side of the story out into the world. So so I think the 2000s were really this point when you know the rise of TMZ, the rise of Perez. There was kind of the shift of um, publicists don't run this town anymore. We're going to do some real reporting on 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 you guys, 
And I think that I think we like should pause and say like there was real reporting that was happening. Like TMZ has a whole boatload of like ethical things, but they were doing shoe leather <laughs> reporting. They were um, kind of applying these these basic journalistic like call everyone you know or call everyone associated with the story and like get the juice. And that I think hadn't really been done a ton in the sort of soft focus here are my baby photos, people magazine kind of thing. <laughs> and that's the interesting part, right? Because there are elements of that, of journalism in here, as you say, of real yeah. journalism. And it's not like a world where we just get Instagram baby photos all the time is like a, you know, it might be a happier world in just a narcotic sense. Like, oh yeah, look yeah. at that. But I mean, <laughs> journalistically, yeah, totally. that's not great. You know, that's not. Yeah. That's- and, and, I, and I think the other thing that's really notable is that the celebrity stories and the power of celebrity media made its way into mainstream media. So CNN was covering Benefer, you know, mm-hmm. there were like people were following the Britney Spears news on cable and like CBS news was covering Britney's breakdowns. I mean, this stuff made it into the mainstream TMZ, I think because of its reporting. And I talk about this a little bit in the series, like TMZ, Mainstream places had to credit TMZ for breaking big stories, you know, which I think they were uncomfortable doing, but it was kind of like, you know, this is, these are the people who were there first. And I think that like, that was another really interesting element, the the way that this kind of fluff stuff was smuggled into kind of the nightly news or like people's regular mainstream diet. So kind of everyone was, was, was digesting it. And the reason that's happening is because CNN is seeing how successful this is and says, we just, we just have to find a way to get this on our network somehow. I think people, yeah, I think like cable, even the, the sort of, you know, terrestrial networks, the ABCs, the CBSs. Yeah. That was what people wanted to watch. Um, And it kind of felt like a, a new thing. I mean, like TMZ's, the celebrities that TMZ created, like Paris Hilton and sort of the cast of characters that come with Paris Hilton. those were sort of fascinating to people. And there was a lot of access. There were a lot of paparazzi on the street doing videos. There was a lot of B-roll. Like it was just kind of good for TV and sort of easy TV. And um, yeah, I think it's in the same way that like, frankly, over the past five or six years, TV execs have realized like, wow, people really love arguing about politics and people really <laughs> like, like, I mean, like there's, <laughs> How there's can we get cer- more of that on our air. Yeah. There's certain fundamental principles of like what makes good TV. And it's like conflict, sex, pretty people, like that stuff's good. And so like, I think that's why it made it into the airwaves. Yeah. And you start talking about this all kind of happening in the aftermath of 9-11. There's so much gloomy news. There's so much just awful news in the world that this whole level exists kind of as a something to distract us for us to look over here and feel good or at least not awful for a few minutes. I think so. I mean, it's like the, the early aughts were, you know. 9-11, war in Iraq, war in Afghanistan, Bush. Um, obviously, the financial crash happened in 2008. I mean, there was a lot of hairy stuff happening in the 2000s. Um, and I do think we liked escapism. I mean, you know, I, I talked to um, Ben Whittacombe, who was, is a longtime you know, gossip columnist and wrote this really smart book um, called Gate Crasher. And he was, he kind of had the, the, um, the, like sort of the OG 
pre-Perez gossip blog around town. And he was kind of covering that just post 9-11, 2000s New York gossip world. And that's where gossip was really centered. I think it was like a very New York business for a while. And then I think TMZ's rise sort of shifted things a little bit to the West Coast. But I think Ben is very smart about the fact that people were looking to be um, to be distracted. I mean, we all want something a little palliative, right? Like, that's why we're all scrolling Instagram or like, you know, watching whatever. We spent the past two years watching whatever, you know, junk is shoved down our, our Netflix. <laughs> Absolutely. Thing. Yeah. So, so it makes sense. I mean, we want something that's just, you know, it's like, it's my, my dad always says like about movies, he's like, I don't want to see something serious. Like I've spent my entire week at work. Like I want to, I want something that like, takes my mind off it. And I think that's sort of what gossip and this this sort this whole subculture of tabloids was to us during that decade. The second episode you talk about how the early 2000s is also the high period of the paparazzi in America. What conspires to make that the case? Yeah. I mean a big part of it is um the the war between the sort of newly ascendant Us Weekly and People magazine. So um paparazzi agencies, you, you know, were realizing that, I mean, one owner of a paparazzi agency told me, you know, People Magazine would pay in the six figures, not even for like a newsy shot of a new couple, but just like something where they, the, the person looked really pretty or they, they had the, it was the thing that they wanted. Um, but so the two magazines kind of going after each other and driving up prices really made, made the paparazzi kind of say like, all right, well, we're going to, we're going to feed this beast. Um, the other thing that happens is that in the mid two thousands, um, you get more, you know, so traditionally paparazzi had been, I sit in a car or I hide and use a long lens to kind of, to, to catch the celebrity in the, you know, unawares. Someone Mm -hmm. told, told me it was like wildlife photography. And in the mid 2000s as we're getting more camera phones as we're getting more digital cameras you don't have to be a skilled photographer more and more people can be paparazzi so there was this one particular guy who read who ran this one particular agency who kind of had this genius to genius idea genius or devious depending on whatever you think just he kind of democratized it and said listen i'm gonna give i'm gonna hire a bunch of these valets from this restaurant I'm going to give them cameras. I'm going to give them video cameras. And I'm going to tell them instead of hiding away in a car, just go up close to, you know, the main shopping strip and like take pictures of Paris Hilton right up close, take pictures of Britney Spears right up close. And people could sell those pictures for a ton of money. And so you got more and more paparazzi. I mean, it's, it's economics, right? Like people were making a huge amount of money. And so, you know, I think that all kind of culminates around Britney Spears in 2007 and 2008, where it was really just a person having an obvious mental breakdown, an American society that wasn't particularly compassionate about mental health, as we we talked about, wanted to see celebrities knocked down. And then just, you know, I think a lot of guys who were probably middle to lower middle class who were making bank on selling these photos of Britney Spears. And I think all of that sort of drove this really insane paparazzi rush because obviously there'd been paparazzi before but it had been kind of like a photojournalist thing like i mean there you know you, you could still you could still say a lot about like the ethics of of the paparazzi but it was kind of like this skilled set of people and and in the mid-aughts people just like it just was like a 
onslaught of massive numbers of, of paparazzi on like the streets of LA. Spencer Pratt talked to you for this podcast. He did. <laughs> so he has this one quote in the first episode, famous people have ruined fame. Can you, can you give us an idea of what he means by that? I thought that was intriguing. Yeah. I mean, more from Spencer on episode seven and eight. Um, oh, here we go. Yeah. He he's, um, I, I mean this in all seriousness. Spencer is extremely smart and like he and their couple, we didn't, we didn't actually get to talk to Ben Affleck for the show, but, um, Ben Affleck, I think is actually quite also quite an agile <laughs> thinker about the media and about celebrity, but Spencer has spent a lot of time thinking about celebrity in this era. And basically his, his point is like famous people have ruined fame by being too available to us. So he'll say like, why are you on Instagram? Like, you know, showing me like how to bake bread with no makeup on. And like, you know, if you're going to do that, sell it to a magazine for money. But also like, I don't want to see you as a normal pe person. I want you to like be something different from me. I want you to give me escape. And that's kind of Spencer's point is that like by putting all the content out for free on Instagram and by becoming now just like us, celebrities <laughs> kind of have taken the magic away. And, um, and he, you know, he, he has a, he obviously has an interesting perspective on fame because he's like openly a hustler, right? Like openly talks about his deals back in the day with the paparazzi agencies, openly talks about like being a fame whore and like how that works. And he's kind of like, you know, the A-list celebrities are fame whores too. They just like, they just didn't do it in the right way. They, they, they kind of gave it all up for us. They, they, they screwed up the economics of it. Um, so Spencer, Spencer is an enlightening <laughs> in, <laughs> interview. He's got skin in the game. That's for sure. Yeah. From every side of it. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, you do also say that we can see the values of America fairly clearly in celebrity media. So this, this is the part that really scares me because I, I think you're absolutely right. But what are the values? What do those values turn out to be? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think it's, um, I'll answer it. I'll answer that this way. I think there's a, I think we all, I think a lot of us know that there's an American mythology, right? You know, we're here for quality and, you know, whatever, home of the brave, <laughs> land of the free, that kind of thing. Um, and we'd like to think that, you know, we're, a, we're a just society or a, we, we strive for justice. And I think the thing about tabloids and tabloid stories is that they bring out in us like the things that you actually talk about with the people you're closest to over dinner or like it reveals the things that you feel deeply and someone has embedded in you from the time you were a child, but you're maybe like a little bit afraid to say out, out loud. Mm -hmm. And I think so like, you know, tabloid stories reveal a lot about, I mean, you could say it's what do the, what do the kids say you're telling on yourself? I mean, but we tell on ourselves in through tabloid stories and how we view them, our views on, on race, on women, I mean, gender in general, but like women in particular. And I think like, um, I think that's the one that I kind of started with because I was reading all this stuff as a teenage girl. And you do realize like the beauty standards of 2002 versus 2022 are really different. I mean, obviously whatever, there's still a lot of problems, but like that is kind of this notable thing to me having kind of lived it and lived those insecurities. So when I talk about like they reveal our real values, it's kind of like take, take any 
meaty issue. And tabloids will sort of show you like, well, here's what people are actually talking about when they talk about this issue versus like, here's the thing that like, you know, whatever you're supposed to say about, mm-hmm. about this, about this issue or the thing you're supposed to believe. And it's, it's a little more complicated because it, because it specifies the problem for us. It's not about, it's not about race and class. It's about how do I feel about this particular couple? And like, how, you know, or I, th- and I think like kind of the perfect example and complicated example of 2022 era tabloid media are uh Megan and Harry right which is uh obviously it was, it was a story about race because of the way the british tabloids covered her but then it also became the story about like wealth and money and privilege and like you know who's using who wh- whom right like is is terry is harry using the media is he like a spoiled rich kid like there's just a lot of stuff going on there so i think it's uh they provide it's it's fertile ground for us to to actually talk about how we think about things in the world claire malone thanks for coming on the press box thanks for having me now a lot of you know the name john darneal he is the singer songwriter with the band the mountain goats and he is also a novelist I just read his new book, Devil House, this week. It is really, really interesting because Devil House starts out like a standard thriller. Its main character is Gage Chandler, who writes true crime stories. Chandler Chandler moves to a small California city to write a book about some murders that happened there and were never solved. Exactly the kind of murders you could imagine being the subject of a podcast or a Netflix documentary today. But Devil House turns out to be not about those murders, really. It's about the whole genre of true crime. Why do we like stories like this? Why do we read and listen to them? And what are the journalists who dredge up old murders and interview the survivors really doing? As someone who is very much not a true crime person, I love uncomfortable questions like these. I actually want to ask more of them. Here's John Darneal. All right, John, your first novel, Wolf and White Van, came out in 2014, and I know you'd written fiction before that. Why'd you want to write novels? Um, it, as with a lot of things, it's because somebody asked me, hey, aren't, aren't you want, don't you want to do this? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, sure. I mean, but in the case of Wolf and White Van, what happened was somebody had asked me why I wasn't pitching to 33 and a third like all the other music critics were, right? And when they asked me that, it was, uh, David Barker, I think his name was, um, I said, well, I don't know. I don't get the sense you guys are into the kind of music that I'm into, but I, you know, what about Black Sabbath? And I pitched a, an idea that was a, a work of criticism cloaked in a fictional conceit, right? I mean, you could argue that all fiction is in some way critique cloaked in a fictional conceit, right? But that was explicitly about a particular work of art, right? Um, I handed it in and started waiting to hear back from the editor and kind of dreading because I don't have a great history with people line editing me um, for better or worse. Uh, and as I was waiting, I'd been writing every day. So I just started working on something else, you know, just, just to be doing it, you know, and those became, that became Wolf and White Van. And what happened there was then we wanted to edit on Master Reality. It published, right. I, I kept pecking away at this thing I was doing, but it was not a first priority. It was just sort of an idle pleasure. And it had like 11 chapters written with no real end designed or inside or intent, intention to do anything with it. When an agent called and said, hey, I liked Master of Reality, and if you were ever writing anything else, I'd love to represent it. No pressure, right? Um, actually, that was before I got to 11. He said, no pressure. 
you know, if you want to be signed and then if, if you wound up with something you want to show people, I could be the guy who did that. I said, sure. And then at one point, like four years later, he says, Hey, if you had anything to show around, you know, people will sometimes buy a manuscript based on what's called a partial. If you have five or six chapters to show, I said, Oh, I got six chapters. <laughs> so, so I sent him six chapters and then he sold them. <laughs> and then I had to finish the book. <laughs> this process repeated after I handed in that book. I handed in Wolf and White Van. I'm waiting to hear from Sean McDonald on it. You know, it's not like it took forever, but I'm a busy minded guy. So after about a week, I'm like, okay, well, I'll start working on something else. And that became Universal Harvester. Same thing happened with the new one. Uh, I just, I just start working again, you know. What was your issue with editors? Uh, it's young arrogance, to be honest. Is like I always, when I was like, like most young writers, I sort of have the sense that anybody messing with my text doesn't have the be- the best, you know, ends in mind. I don't think like that anymore. But also, I now am the best critic of my own work. People say you're the worst critic, but I don't think of it that way. It's like I don't deliver anything that needs line editing. I just don't. Right? It's like uh, when I hand stuff in, it means I have edited and re-edited. And I don't hand in stuff that, that anybody needs to go over at that level, right? I have gone through it a bunch of times. If they did, I'm open to it. But it just doesn't, uh, it doesn't come to that at this point because I'm really very intense with myself about it. Back when I was younger, I had that arrogance that many young, especially boy writers have where you, you, know, you write something and you go, my God, look at that beautiful sentence there. You know? And then somebody <laughs> says, well, this seems a little long. You refer to yourself, oh my God, you're trying to edit my work. You, know, you grow up with a lot of these myths about about uh, writers who, who don't want to be edited. And you sort of have to spend a lot of time uh, ridding yourself of those notions because your editor is your friend. He's trying to make the, the text as good as it can be, right? Um, but in the case of my relationship with Sean at FSG, uh, he doesn't edit me for lying because he knows that I will take care of it. This may be a dumb question, but can you write a novel and songs at the same time? Or does your brain have to be in one particular creative mode? Well, I mean, not in the same moment. I have to no, no, not literally at the same time, but like on the same day. In same one week? Ten, oh yeah, no, all the time I'm working. I'm working on something. It's uh, it's not. Uh, it's not. Yeah, they're not exclusive of each other at all. Uh, songs are are fast, and uh, you know, and I always think, you know, I think this if I have other bits of work to do, like cooking or whatever else, is like if you're working on one thing and you've been working out for a while, one way to go get inspired about it is to go do something else, right? Mm-hmm. And the something else now will have like the, oh, I get to do this. I'm away from the other thing for now. And you get excited and you do that. You go back to the other, you get the sort of same ping pong effect, you know? I mean, you could do that with multiple texts too. I imagine that there's, well, I'm certain that there's plenty of writers who've had many books going at once. And I know this from, I remember this from school. If you're doing schoolwork and you have seven classes to study for and you're deep in one and it's kind of getting painful now, I just ping pong over to the other one, you know? And, and then do that. I'm good at this. This is great. Get a little more confidence. Go back to the other. It's sort of like that. Is there a different pleasure in writing a good sentence for a novel versus writing a good line for a song? Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, uh, one thing, when I talk about editing with sentences, you know, they don't all come out good on first draft. Many of them come out terribly, and I don't even notice. It's very, very interesting to me to revise on this one. It's like, I'll finish a big section. I'll know it's good. I know that in terms of the story, it's going where I want it to go, and it has a good musical flow to it. You know, a lot of my sections that end in the double line break are about a sort of a musical build, you know, or, or in, uh, some progress that, that has a, a relationship to, to music, to, to pure music, not music with lyrics. Um, but, uh, but when I'll go back to revise, like I'll go back to a year ago as I was getting along and I'll go, Oh my God, this is so bad. You know, the story's fine. You know, you, you've got all the details in place. The details are good. 
but some of the sentences will just be appalling to me. You know, I, I, the thing is, I am not curious about whether people would publish them or not. I don't want to know, right? Uh, but uh, but I always fix them. It's like when I see them, they're, it's not hard to fix a bad sentence. You just have to know that it's bad, you know. And then it's easy. Fixing sentences is mechanical work, you know. And then you get to do the fine the fine tuning of like, well, now the sentence is good, and now which words in it do I think might be a little harsher or prettier or gorier or whatever. You know, yeah, it's it's knowing it's bad. That's the fraught part. Yeah, sometimes I mean, people don't me, know it's easy. bad. I'm, that that's very easy for me because I don't take it personal if I write a bad sentence. It doesn't say anything about me negative to me because I know I'm capable of good sentences. So I write a bad one, it just means that my that the other parts of book writing, the story writing, the world building, all the other stuff was running ahead of that. It's asking a lot to jug to get all those right the first pass. You know, that's that's a lot. Um, it's the same with songs. You know, that like you, you find you wrote. Often with songs, is like you'll have some complicated sequence of passing chords getting to something. You go, you know, it's better if I, instead if I went from the five to the three to the minor two to the one, if I just go minor two to one, right? Maybe just maybe just really break it down like that. And often that's a good solution musically. To you know, not always. I was actually figuring out how to play a song off of Goths this week and debating what to do about it for the live arena because something we haven't played in a long time. And, uh, and it has some pretty complicated breakdowns, like a lot of the stuff on that record has some complicated transitions. And I was debating whether to, to simplify them or, uh, or go figure out what they actually were. <laughs> <laughs> the main character in Devil House, Gage Chandler, writes true crime books. Are you a true crime reader? No. Uh, like a lot of young goth-leaning people, I used to read a lot of true crime or be interested in it, you know look it up at the library, check out the Zodiac book, the Graysmith book, you know. I read Monkey on a Stick, the Har- Murder Madness in the Hare Krishna's book. Okay. Um, that's a true crime book. Uh, I mean, the thing is, I probably own a fair number of true crime books because I'm an inveterate book buyer. You know, I just, I buy, am I using inveterate correctly? I'm not sure. I uh, think so, yeah. I buy a, lo- I buy a lot of books anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, uh, and I have often bought plenty of true crime books look interesting enough. But a lot of the issues that... Uh, that Devil House raises about true crime are ones I also have. I don't want to be, um, you know, I don't want to be leering at people's tragedies, you know, uh, nor do I want to be sort of performing righteousness over where well, you read it, you know, like a lot of the reasons people give for reading a lot of stuff like this is like, you know, so you know what's out there. I know what's out there. I don't need to be further advised that human beings are capable of terrible things. That's not news. <laughs> That's never been news. So, so, uh, so yeah, but at the same time, it's human to be very interested in this stuff. This is normal, right? Whether it's news or not, it's very normal in a lot of ways to be attracted to those stories. Um, I do think people fool themselves about what, about why they're into it. You know, I, I think it's the same as the urge to watch a public hanging. You know, it's like uh, you, you take some pleasure in in some gore that happened to somebody who's not you. You know, <laughs> I think it's a lot of it. Um, so, uh, you know. But also, I mean, the other thing is, if there's good writers in the field, good writing is good writing. Good books are good books. It doesn't matter what they're about. You know, it also sort of doesn't matter what their moral weight is to a certain extent. A good book is a good book, right? Uh, and it's a pleasure, right? So, uh, so when, you know, In Cold Blood is a true crime book, but we all know it's a, it's a great pleasure to read Capote. He's, he writes great sentences, right? Sure. And, uh, and, takes, and, and, and takes great pains to make sure that the sentences are all in, in a nice order, you know? And so... Uh, so there's a lot in there, but I myself, no, I mainly read literary fiction. Uh, when I read nonfiction, um, it's either 
either it's by Annie or no, who's a memoirist, a French memoirist who I, uh, I hope to read as much of her translated work as possible because she's a genius. Um, or it's something uh, uh, historical. Does um, you back up for just one second? Can you say we fool ourselves when we read true crime about what yeah. we like about it? What are we? What are we? What is the story we're telling ourselves then? That we're, the what's the reason we think we're reading this stuff or like? Well, I mean, stuff? look, I can't speak with authority about this because, like, this you know, I can't pretend to say why other people do things. That's why I'm not a pundit. Right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I know what's going on inside other people's heads. But it feels to me like if somebody says, "Look, you know, I've I've read my." eighth story about some family that got slaughtered and the lesson i took for it is the same as the lesson i took from the last seven of them well, and i say well there's something more about this reading than getting a lesson if you if you got the lesson from the second one <laughs> you've done it six more times then i know a little something about your behavior i know you're taking simple pleasure in it right uh i know that they're not all truman capotes in fact there's very few of those right uh and so uh so I know then that that probably there's there's some pleasure in now there's there's many other possible pleasures like there's the pleasure of repetition. Plenty of people like to read the same type of book a lot of times because it's a known quantity. And in this life, known quantities are increasingly precious, right? It's like sure. in, the, in the course of the pandemic, if you got into mysteries, I would not blame you if you read twenty Nile Marsh books in a row, you know, because you know how that works. There's something that you can have, you know. But in the case of true crime this is the documentation of other people's misery and of human monstrosity. It is a choice to immerse yourself in some, in some bad vibe stuff, you know? Um, and unless you're doing that to further research that somehow, that somehow alleviates or ameliorates those ills in the world, then I would say there's, there's a straight pleasure principle at work. Right. And that, and that's the thing. That I think people would be, but I don't. I don't think everybody is. I know plenty of people. I could name friends. My life. no, no. I like it because there's blood and people got hurt, which I think is an honest and okay take. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, I'm, I watch splatter movies, but again, in the case of true crime, we are talking about people's lives, and uh, and that to me is different. When you talk about hallmarks of a genre, you have Chandler sort of reflecting on this, and a couple times in the book, there's always like a secondary victim that the mm. writer is ginning up some sympathy for just enough sympathy. I think you put it in the book so that we yes. will care when that person, when they die, that's, right. <laughs> that's, right. that's one of my favorite lines of Gage Chandler <laughs> because it's true. It's like, you know, all these books they, they, that I've read, uh, they do not, not all like uh, the Grace Smith book, the Zodiac book, plenty of the victims don't, don't get much of a buildup. They're just sitting there and the Zodiac arrives. I mean, it's another of Gage's lines where he he gets a second hand from somebody where he says there's there's a there's there's two types of people in true crime books. There's a hero and there's his victims, right? Uh, and uh, and in the Gray Smith book, that's almost true. It's like you know you are supposed to be impressed with this guy who writes these complex ciphers that seasoned code crackers can't 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 get, right? It's like you are you are supposed to sort of be in awe of him, right? I think Thomas Harris um, does really interesting stuff with this in the way he elevates uh, uh, Hannibal Lecter as, you know, a figure you can't help but admire in some way, you know, and, and, and makes everybody in the books feel that way. You know? One thing that really spoke to me about the book is you have two of the murders happening in 1986 and they're covered in tabloid style by local news. Yeah. How did local news in that era cover crimes like that? What was the tone? So this actually comes from experience insofar as I was in Southern California during the McMartin arrests and trials, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? Sure, yeah. So 
that was a full-on hysteria in a real sense, right? It's like a, that was a, a moral panic, right? Um, and uh, but I worked in uh, children's psych at that time, so we believed all of it, right? Every last one of us. Uh, there were no naysayers. Um, and uh, and there's a book about this moral panic that I'm always recommending called "We Believe the Children," uh, very very subtly written and very good uh, sociological book. Um, so. Uh, so that's where I was, you know, I was there when this was happening. There was new, and, and you, you could see, and like real cynics would be going, you know, the news people, they love this. They, they, they do. They, they, any detail they get. And, and this is a true crime sort of related thing. As like I say, you know, grim news today out of Manhattan beach is the third day of interviews. And, and you really, it's very, it's very Puritan. You know, it's, it's very, uh, it, it has this tone of like, you know, of, of the, you know, the, the youth counselor saying, no, I, I don't take any pleasure in telling you what could happen to you if you choose to indale, indulge in premarital sex. But there's a disease called syphilis, right? And then they give these speeches, right? And it's clear they do take pleasure in describing <laughs> potential ends. A lot of pleasure, actually, right? And, uh, and the news took, you know, took the pleasure in, in the form of getting eyes on the news and getting viewers and, and, you know, and sponsors from presenting this case in the light that they presented it in, right? It was... Uh, you know, and this isn't to impute, you know, I don't think people are going, ah, this is probably a lie, but I'm going to air it, you know, because it was in the midst of a moral panic. But, uh, but, but yeah, so that was, that was the mood. And that's where I get that from is like every station, all three networks in Southern California, every night for months, McMartin on the lead, McMartin on the lead every single night. There was this thing about local news in the eighties and maybe they still do it where they would have a murder and then they would interview the prototypical man or woman on the street. Oh, yes. And the person didn't have to know anything about what happened <laughs> or who the person was. It was almost like, I mean, what, what was that? You have that in this book too. Like what yeah. were we getting out of that interaction? The, the sort of, Oh, you know, I, I, it's so crazy. The police are here. I don't know what's going on. So I, I mean, this continued on into the early 2000s. I haven't watched a lot of local news in a long time, but uh, there was a, uh, there was a guy who got memed down in uh, Georgia when uh, somebody was was crawling in through windows, and he said, "Hide your kids, hide your wife." Right? It got this, this is a whole thing. Um, uh, catching the man on the spot, the man on the street interview is like such a storied news technique, right? It's not only for murders, also is for almost everything. Uh, and I, mean, I think the reason we don't have that anymore is we have the internet. The man on the street is is heard loudly uh, in, the, in their millions and billions every single day in every language. Right. Uh, but I think back then it was the case that like, then you would hear from somebody in the town, you know, you would hear from somebody nearly affected and that humanizes the case a little bit. Uh, you know, and it also gives the, you know, it pads the story a little bit. It, it, it relieves the, the newscaster of having to be the one to say, well, this news is certainly quite grim. You know, you can have some other, here's a person who lives nearby. He's even more upset than I am, right? And so, uh, and they can frame this, they can help frame the story you like. It lends support to your argument, right? Does that, I take no pleasure in reporting this tone, jump from local news in that period to national news in the 90s, 2000s? I'm thinking here of Dateline, 48 Hours, those kind of shows. I mean, I think, yeah, I, I, I think uh, Dateline, 48 Hours, what, what precedes those? 2020, right? Sure. Uh, in the late 70s, those. Those sorts of uh, somewhat muckrakey and sometimes very useful, you know, uh, uh, investigative reporting. And the pioneer of this was Geraldo Rivera, of course. He was the guy who was always injecting a tone of moral outrage into his reportage, right? Uh, when he did 
what was the name of that asylum? Uh, he made his bones on this story. He went to an asylum. And the thing is, uh, I don't know the fullness of the story, but if he succeeded in exposing poor treatment conditions at a psych facility, good for him, you know, good for him. However, he got that done because patients deserve dignity in their lives, you know, and, uh, and although the other thing is, if you go into a facility and you haven't been into any other facilities, then perhaps your view on the nature of how things work there is, you know, isn't, isn't very complete. Some ways in a good way, because it's always good to get outside eyes to go, look, from where I stand, what you're doing is terrible. That's always good, right? But at the same time, if you don't know anything about the patients or the doctors, then your view is going to be a little weird because you don't know what it's like inside a hospital and you don't know the patients themselves or their unique needs, which are individual, right? And so, uh, but all that being said, uh, conditions in a lot of hospitals in the 70s were appalling and he probably exposed some that were appalling, but he did so in the process of doing so, he was morally outraged and he found that that was an effective way of telling your story, right? Now you could argue that if you don't have an effective way to sell your story, then your story isn't gonna get anything done, right? That's, and that's true. I could talk to you dryly about conditions in hospitals right now, but if I don't have a platform and I don't succeed in inspiring emotion in you, you might say, well, that sounds pretty bad, but you're not going to care five minutes from now. There's too much other stuff competing for your attention, right? So, um, but, uh, but yeah, but so that tone, that tone rose, I think, from there, if not earlier. Uh, but those are the, those are the ones that he, of course, went on to, to use that more and more. Uh, I actually think he's kind of a complex figure uh, as far as that stuff goes, because I think... I think at the end of the day, with a lot of these stories, his heart is in the right place, but it often comes out comes out a little weird. Yeah, and there was like a feel that was like a rebrand of those shows somewhere around the turn of the century, where they would ostensibly be part of the news operation, and then they got rebranded as like Dateline Mystery and Forty Eight Hours Mystery, and it well, just became about a current a, affair. I think uh, you remember a, a current affair. Sure, yeah. Bill O'Reilly, I think, was one of the anchors of a current affair, and uh, I think that's right. Uh, yeah, and a current Marty affair was, too. Yeah. Yeah, Maury Povich. That's right, Maury, <laughs> who went who went on to do the most exploitative type of uh, of uh, daytime talk show stuff. You know, the stuff where you bring people on with nothing to lose and have them act out their trauma for the camera, right? And uh, uh, right, the, the Maury show. Sure, right. One of those. I mean, there's so many of those shows in the '90s you can't even count them. Um, and uh, and and yeah, so Current Affair was doing that sort of thing where you'd have a 10 minute capsule version of this sort of thing, so you get just the tease, you know, just enough to, to make you sick and be a little outraged. And then you don't even have to spend a whole hour thinking about the complexities of it. We've got another one lined up for you. Right. And, uh, and, and they did all the, any of the, you know, I'm, I'm reasonably certain there was a Ricky Casso piece there, uh, who was a killer in Long Island, uh, uh killed a bunch of his friends, uh, and, uh, or several of his friends anyway. And, uh, uh, yeah. So I think all that stuff is sort of in the bloodline of, 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 of this stuff, you know, and I don't, the, the thing that I'm always want to stress is like when I talk about Devil House in these terms, it sounds like I've written sort of a morally instructive book, which I don't think I've done uh, because I don't, I think what I'm talking about is, is intensely human. You know, it's like, it is normal, right? For people to behave this way and to be this interested in things. You know, we are a people who once attended fights uh, called gladiator fights. Uh, they had to build a building large enough to house you know, a large segment of the population of Rome to host these fights because everybody wanted to see them. They were good entertainment, you know? And, uh, uh, yeah, it was only the 20th century that somebody started, or 19th, I think, the people started, you know, maybe having the execution in public is not a great 
thing. <laughs> so, you know, uh, we're not, we're not that noble as creatures, you know, we, we have some strivings, you know, but, uh, but, and we shouldn't be calling on ourselves to be like, you know, noble all the time, but I, uh, I, but obviously we should do our best. And, uh, and, and I'm, and here I'm telling a story of a person who I think sees a complication in the way he's been describing the world and tries in some way to atone. Right? So not morally instructive, but morally curious morally Morally curious is exactly right morally curious insofar as as soon as you start to say you know as soon as you start to become corrective in in the sense of uh you know dreiser who i like by the way i like to read dreiser i think dreiser is is intensely corrective i think dickens is corrective and on purpose right dickens is trying to make you feel bad for the children in the poor houses in the hopes that that whole system be reformed and in fact reforms were uh enacted in the wake of the vast popularity of Charles Dickens's work. Good for him, right? Um, but that's not what I do for such a platform. I don't think I can actually affect any substantive change at that level for a number of reasons. But beyond that, uh, I do think that that getting the questions posed is part of that continuum, right? And like, And the people who are good at getting the questions to lodge in a way that they stick with you for a day or a week, that that's our that's our position as in the sense of baseball player position, right? So as the shortstop stands in between second and third base, and that's your alley, right? And for me, uh, you know, I think fleshing out some of the difficulties of the question is, uh, is what I'm going to be better at than, than telling people uh, what they ought or ought not be doing. Uh, Cause I really do struggle with, you know, for me, that would feel very arrogant to think who the hell am I <laughs> to say what people ought to do and how they ought to do it. I don't know. I'm not in their shoes, you know? I mean, that's really, that's the outlook of the whole book. It's like, if you, if you should be cautious in telling stories, it's because you have not walked in the shoes of the people who are in the stories, right? And that's, that's maybe the central theme of this book. Did you talk to people who write these kind of books? Because you have all these details about buying things on eBay and mapping out crime scenes that really felt like they were from people who have worked in this genre. This is the part of the interview where I wish I was better at lying to interviews because I would love to say, yeah, I did talk to a few people. They asked not to be named. Uh, they, 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 they said, uh, they'd rather keep it on background. So with respect to that, um, I'm going to say I had a couple of long phone conversations, but in point of fact, I made it all up. I, I just, I, all I did was I said, uh, what would I do if I were writing this book? You know, if, if I were this guy who has this thing about primary texts and about artifacts and about locations, I had made all that up. And then I just said, well, you know, let's say I pitched this book and I got an advance to write it. And now I have to write it. What would I do? Well, I would go on eBay. And I know that there'll be things like this on eBay, right? I know that I know this because a band called Acid Bath used a John Wayne Gacy painting for their front cover, right? I know this because I know killer artifacts are a thing that goths get into, right? And, uh, and it's just like relics of the saints, you know, it's exactly that sort of thing, you know? And uh, so I just guessed, I just, I just, uh, I, I made some stuff up. <laughs> working backwards essentially from from what you yeah. like you said create a character you're familiar with the genre from your younger right. days and then kind of work backwards from there how would i do so that's right just start asking questions i mean to me 90 percent of writing a book is asking the right questions you know or just asking a bunch of questions and then figuring out which ones are interesting rather than the right questions there's i don't want to give too much of the plot away but chandler moves to small city of milpitas california he is attempting to write a new true crime book when he then, well, let's just say he faces complications, means to think about the genre, as you say, pitching these questions out into the world about how this works and how it should work. I Another line struck me, and I think we'll, we'll end it here, but you said 
making everybody feel like they know what it's like when they don't and never will. In which you mean writing with this kind of confidence when we do journalism or true crime, whatever it is, right? And saying like, I'm good at this. I've done my research. Here's the story. Right. But leaving readers with what is necessarily, help me here, like an incomplete story, not the whole thing? I mean, well, look, uh, the thing is, all stories are incomplete. You don't have a story if you're telling the complete story. You have you have a mess because uh, because narrative is generally something we impose from the outside. This is one reason that people are constantly using the narrative as a term right now, which, by the way, that's my windmill right now. I'm like trying to get people to stop saying the narrative and everything. It's like, <laughs> or, 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 or describe somebody's stance as, well, that's your narrative. No, no, that's my opinion. <laughs> it's like, stop, stop using... Stop throwing narrative around when you mean something a little simpler, you know. But uh, but at the same point, the reason they're doing that is because uh, people have noticed over the past uh, past while, however long, hundred years or whatever, that uh, that we do tend to ascribe a narrative, right, to any to any situation, right. We want to we want there to be an overarching narrative. We want there to be a, a story that is the strongest storyline coming through it, and then we're going to probably call that the true one. Right, but we know there've been a lot of a lot of work doing that, doing this in fiction for for years. I mean, there's a you know the um, uh, the old fable well, for thousands of years, the fable of the blind man and the elephant. Right, that you have you know one of them's holding onto the tail, and one of them's touching the side, and one of them's touching the trunk, and they're all asked to describe this animal. Right? Well, they all give three very different descriptions because they cannot see the animal, but they are having their own experience of these parts of the animal. Well, that's the story about narrative. Right, that's the story about when you are telling a story, I don't care how hard you work, you're not seeing all the angles. There's no way, right? It's every, every story is too complex for that unless the story is like, you know, you know, I mean, even the story, if I, if I pick up this pillow that's on my bed and then I put it down, well, the fact that I'm the guy who did it means it's a complicated story because I am a complicated person like anybody else, right? I'm not more or less complicated than anybody else. So anything anybody does is necessarily hopelessly complicated, Right, and we want to simplify it because stories are great and vital and precious, precious tender for us. We need these stories. I want them. Right, but uh, but they're all incredibly complicated. And when you're telling one that is rooted in truth, the responsibility is to sort of tell the one that um, that sort of holds the most space for the various truths in it. Now, often the way we would think of this these days is like, look. I'm going to tell the one that elevates anyone who is a victim in this story and gives lesser space to anyone who made those people the victim. I think that's a noble impulse, but it also is the same sort of behavior. It's the same sort of tendency to simplify a story that is not actually that simple. We know this, right? It's like, this is what makes life difficult. It's like, this is, and this is where, I mean, this is where Jesus comes into the picture because you can't stay mad at most killers if you know how they got that way. Right. You know, most of the killers, they didn't wait. They didn't come into this world that way. Something shaped them that way. Now, you still, of course, want to hold them accountable for their actions. But people who sort of just just say, I I hate that guy that I know nothing about because he did these things is like, well, I bet that if I were to show you that guy's childhood and make you actually watch a couple of days of it, you would have a different opinion. Right. And unless you're, you know, a, a moral infant, you wouldn't be able to say, well, he should have just dealt with that. <laughs> it's like you can't. Some of the stuff that happens to these people, Charles Manson growing up in prisons, you know, there was no hope for Charles Manson. Now, this, this doesn't excuse his behavior in any way at all, but it does mean that if you just say, and I hate him, well, you know, 
what what you hate is the the, the world that that made a Charles Manson possible. And then, and then who are you really angry at? You know, so these are the complicated stories that are necessarily effaced by telling one story, right? After you rid the world of the word narrative, can you work on the word storytelling? It's uh, kind of a catch-all. Maybe. I suspect in your, in your field, that one plagues you more than it does in mine. Because to me, to me, stories, uh, storytelling, interesting. But I think if, if, it's, if it's doing that work in your world, it's probably just because somebody's trying to weasel their ideas about narrative in there and they, they know you're going to catch him because my crusade has, has crossed their, their desks. <laughs> John Darneal, thanks for coming on the Press Box. My pleasure. Good to talk to you. Huge thanks to Claire Malone and John Darneal for coming on the podcast. I'm Brian Curtis. Production magic, as always, by Erica Cervantes. Next Thursday in this space, we have an interview with Margaret Brennan. She is the moderator of CBS's Face the Nation. We're going to ask her... How do you get politicians to actually say something on television? And on Monday, my man David Shoemaker and I will have plenty to talk about, including more lukewarm takes about the media. Have a fantastic weekend.